Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. Pastor Sean and his family are out of town for a bit, so it's my joy to fill the pulpit for him this Sunday and next Sunday. I'd originally planned to continue my study through 1 Corinthians, but after prayerfully considering and talking to some pastors and church members, I thought it would be prudent to take a little break from 1 Corinthians and talk about the church, the body of Christ. The doctrine of the church was nicely summarized in the final version of the Nicene Creed, which was an ancient summary of the Christian faith drawn up by a group of pastors over 1,700 years ago. This doctrinal Summary has served the church for generations to guide the church's health and teaching, to preserve it from heresy. And regarding the church, the Nicene Creed reminds us that the church is, as the church has four particular attributes: that it is one, it is holy, it is Catholic or universal, and it is apostolic. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And my plan is to address each of these characteristics. One in a sermon at each time. We'll begin today by looking at the church as one. The church is one. It is to be united. It is marked by both its current possession of unity and its ongoing pursuit of unity. That is, the church is united and it ever seeks to be united. But the world and Satan would not have it so. The church is always under attack. If you look at the world... Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, Paul says, to think that the church is full of those intolerant Christians. And the the church is the source of all the problems in this world. The church is full of nothing but judgmental, hypocritical, Bible-thumping, uneducated bigots. But the attack upon the unity of the church is not only from without. It's not only from outside of the church. Inside churches, you can see all sorts of unrest and Division. You see political tensions tearing the church at its seams. You see hostility and irritability related to public health. Differing estimations about vaccines or about masks. You see differences of opinions about laws and about mandates. And all of this is happening while the world outside is tearing itself apart. You see riots. You see protests about all of the problems and marches about all of the problems that society has. You see division everywhere, wars overseas and battles at home. Disunity seems to be the standard operating procedure of the world. And sadly, that operating procedure finds its way into churches. But the the Bible reminds us that none of this disunity is new. Ever since sin has entered the world, men and women have been demanding what they want and fighting over it in order to get what they want in their heart. James tells us in his letter, what is it that causes quarrels and what is it that causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have and so you murder. You covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's James' assessment of us. We desire something in our heart, and when we can't get what we want, we murder people to get it. Maybe not with our hands, but with our words, with our actions, with what's in our heart. We fight, we devour, we divide. 
the good news of Scripture is that it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to have our desires in control, in the driver's seat. We don't have to constantly be at war and dividing from our brothers and sisters. We don't have to persist in a constant state of hostility and animosity, enmity. We can instead have peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides for us peace. Christ has come and died for my sin, and by his death I can be reconciled to God. I can have peace with God. I can have the forgiveness of my sins and life everlasting simply by believing in him. But the gospel doesn't just stop there. There are many other blessings of this reconciliation with God, one of which is that it brings unity among the people of God. In fact, one of the most evident proofs of the truthfulness of the gospel is that it reconciles former enemies. That's what Pastor Jamani read from Ephesians 2, where Paul makes it clear. Jews and Gentiles, former ethnic enemies with different political views, different customs, different social expectations, different cultures and dress and language, these formerly disparate groups that were at enmity with one another have been made one because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it is that oneness that I would like to examine today. It is that oneness that should give us hope, even when the world is disintegrating outside. It is that oneness that can nurture our faith and encourage our spirits, even though the world is tearing itself apart with divisiveness and hostility. And this oneness is found in Jesus Christ alone. It is a oneness, a unity that is a fruit of Christ's own ministry. And it's seen in the prayers of Christ, which are recorded for us in John 17. These are sweet words that reveal to us the very heart of our Savior. The heart of our God and what he desires for each of us and for his church, his bride. And so let's read John 17 where Christ is praying to the Father about his people. On the eve of his own crucifixion. And I'll highlight for us a few points about the unity that the church possesses in Christ. John 17. Hear the word of our Lord for us today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, that they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, so that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may, be per- they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire also, whom you have given me, that they may be where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's pray together. Holy Father, teach us from your word about the unity that we have because of Christ, because of our shared union with the Son, and because of our union with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us one, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin with our first point about the unity or the oneness of the church. And the first aspect of our unity is that it is based on a revealed name. Jesus' prayers here teach us that our unity is based on a revealed name, the name of God. Look again at verse 5 from chapter 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Part of Jesus' mission is to reveal the name of God to the people of God. And of course, that doesn't mean he came and simply spoke the name of Yahweh and then his mission was over. Biblically speaking, the name of someone reveals something something real and significant about their character, about their very essence. And therefore, to reveal the name of God means to reveal something significant about God, which is a major part of the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus, being one with the Father, is a fact that's attested to throughout the Gospel of John. And by seeing Christ, we see the Father. Believing in the Son is to believe in the Father, because to know the Son is to know the Father. And as it relates to our unity, we need to remember that the name that is revealed to each and every one of us, a name that is spoken into our hearts, a name that brings faith to an otherwise hard and stony heart, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is a name that we would not know had it not been revealed to us. This is not a name that we ordinarily would love. This is a supernatural revealing. And when it is revealed, it produces a supernatural unity. 
It is a name and a, and a revealing that comes from outside of us. It is a name that is foreign to us. A name that is alien to us. And that is what God's people needed. Something outside of themselves to secure for themselves a salvation that they could not have earned on their own. And the unity that is produced by this name, and a unity that is produced because of this revelation of the name, is based upon something that is outside of us. It's not on the basis of how great we are, or how great we are as a church, how great of a preacher we are, or how righteous we are, or how pristine our theology is, or how many missionaries we've sent out, or how much money we've given. Neither is it a unity based upon our shared experiences or backgrounds or similar political leanings or even ethnic uniformity. This unity is based on something outside of us, something that we would never have had without the sovereign work of God speaking and revealing a name to us. This unity is based upon the free work of God, not on our merit. And this unity ought to promote within us genuine humility. If we aren't the foundation of our unity, if we and our gifts and our abilities and our works and our righteousness aren't the foundation of our unity, then in what do we have to boast? In fact, if the unity that the church has comes in spite of our own sinfulness and only because of Christ's work according to his good pleasure, then we have even less room to boast. Churches ought to be full of humble people because there are no Christians who became so because of their own doing. No Christian has ever saved themselves, have brought themselves out of darkness into light, have ever replaced their hard and stony heart with a heart of flesh. None. If you are a Christian, it is because God has revealed his name to you according to his sovereign will. And thus humility ought to be the proper posture of every Christian. And a church full of humble Christians will be a church marked by unity. May we never boast in our own strength, in our own purity, in our own gifts, in our own doctrinal precision, but boasting only in the Lord who took the initiative to reveal his own name to us and therefore grant us a holy unity that we could never create nor maintain if it was built upon the name of any other man. Our unity is based on the name of God revealed to us in the person and work of Christ and not in the name of any other creature. Second, not only is the unity that we have in Christ from outside of ourselves and based on the name of God, our unity is also to be word-centered. Our unity is word-centered. Look at verse 8 again. Jesus prayed, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know the truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. Jesus has given to his people the words that they need. Words that came from the Father. And by re receiving them, they have confirmed in their minds and in their hearts that Jesus has actually come from the Father. It is the word of God that informs God's people and conforms them to the truth. We are united in and through the word of God that has been delivered to us. The word of God reveals the truth of God to us. And without that, we would be left to wonder what the truth really is. But because we have received the word and we've come to believe in the son, we've come to know the truth and thus to be unified in that truth. This word-centered quality of true Christian unity is significant for the churches of God. 
Our unity is not centered upon any other source of authority. It's not contingent upon similar political leanings. We're not united because we share certain conservative Judeo-Christian values. Our unity is not anchored in any preference or in any strategy or any personality or any other human allegiance. Our unity is founded upon the word of God that has been given to us by Christ, who is our great, high, our great prophet. And he proclaims to us the word of the Father. Our unity is not only to be centered upon the word, it's also to be grounded and founded upon the word. And both of those should be informing how we act with one another and how churches should act amongst themselves. If the unity we share is grounded upon the word of God, then there will be a stability to the unity of Christian churches. We won't be swayed back and forth, distracted by every change of wind, every change in doctrine. A stable unity is unshaken by political upheaval, even global pandemic. Word-centered unity is anchored upon the unchanging word of God, which itself is founded upon the unchanging character of our creator. But in addition to stability, word-centered unity also possesses longevity. Longevity. Our unity founded upon the word of God will be able to last the test of time. Fads come and go. Mostly they just go. Fashions and trends change. Technology marches on and so does life seem to ever grow in complexity. And yet God's word is both unchanging and ever relevant. It is an ancient word and yet it is always contemporary. God's word and the unity it produces stands the test of time because it's built on the eternal, unchanging character of God himself who is not captive to any constraints of time nor any constraints of fashion. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so too is his word, which means that unity built upon his word will possess longevity. Third, Word-centered unity will be both stable and long-lasting, but it will also be edifying. Word-centered unity is edifying. And that's because it's founded upon the word of God. Evangelical unity will build up a church. True word-centered unity will be ever-encouraging to the saints of God. Because God's word is the spiritual food that nourishes all of our souls. God's word is nourishing to every believer. It sustains every soul because it speaks of our Christ who is himself the bread of life as God, John's gospel teaches. And to go one step further, if God's word is the center of our unity, the anchor of our unity, that means that no Christian and no church has the liberty to adjust or move that center. We don't have the authority to tamper with God's word. We should speak where it speaks, and we should get liberty where it is silent. Many Christians and churches have gotten into dangerous waters when they don't proclaim clearly what God's word has made clear. Either out of fear of man or a desire to be liked by the world, they will edit and tweak and soften and try and otherwise remove any offense of God's law. I think this is a driving force in the doctrinal shallowness that often characterizes the church and its institutions today. Brothers and sisters, we have no authority to adjust the word of our good prophet. What he has declared, we must declare in all of its doctrinal integrity, never shying away from the offense of the cross, which will always be offensive 
to a lost and dying world. But not only that, the other end of the spectrum is also true. While some shrink from clearly speaking the things that God has made clear, others make the opposite mistake of speaking authoritatively about matters on which God has been silent. I believe this to be equally damaging and disrespectful to God. Some would risk constraining the consciences of others in ways that Scripture does not constrain and thereby overstep our biblical authority and turn themselves into the very Pharisees that Christ so often condemns in Scripture. God's Word does indeed give us invaluable principles to help guide us in our decision-making. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us walk in wisdom. But the Bible does not give us a step-by-step recipe for every decision in life. God's Word does not tell us which particular candidates to vote for. It doesn't explain for us specific medical advice we should take. It doesn't tell us what school we should attend, what job we should take, or even who we should marry. What we are given in God's clear law is the guiding principles of wisdom. And outside of that, we are to pursue and maintain unity by evaluating the decisions of others with charity and love. We're to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We're to be charitable in all of our judgments. We're not to be in the business of binding consciences of people where Scripture has not bound them. That is not our prerogative, nor do we have that kind of authority. If our unity is founded upon God's word alone, then let us never be guilty of speaking authoritatively where God's word is silent. Let us trust the sufficiency and the authority and the power of our great prophet who has revealed to us the very words of God that we might be fully equipped and united in our battle against sin and Satan in the world. Our unity is to be word-centered. Third, not only is our unity based on a name revealed to us, And founded, centered upon the word of God, our unity is also informed by God himself. Our unity is informed by God himself. And I mean that specifically about the Godhead, the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To say it another way, our unity should be informed by how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. How the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another informs us as to how we should relate. The three persons of the Trinity are united in their mutual intercession, their mutual interpenetration, to use a big theological word. That means that each person of the Godhead is forever and perfectly loving and delighting in each other, completely honoring and beholding the beauty that each possesses as they share in the same beautiful divine essence. In verse 11 from our text, Jesus prays that his people would share in the oneness that the Son has with the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Of such a unity, John Gill wrote, that it is a unity in nature and in will and in affection and in understanding. It's an abiding together, a cleaving together, a standing fast in one spirit, having the same desires and an interest in the Redeemer in their hearts at all times. The unity of God's people is analogous to union with Christ and analogous to the unity of the Godhead. And this grounds our Christian community. To say it succinctly, heavenly unity is both the source and the example for the unity among believers. Now obviously we don't share in exactly the same kind of unity. We don't share the same perfect divine nature. 
But there are principles that we can tease out of this in an analogous way to help inform us of our Christian unity, both in an individual church and among churches. First, see how unity is essential. Unity is essential. Just as it is inconceivable for the Father and the Son to be divided, so too ought the church of God to be zealous for a unity that mimics God's own oneness and indivisibility. If love-based unity marks the divine essence, then what is being proclaimed by an individual or a church that cannot be united? That means that there is some measure of love lacking when a church is divided or when churches split. Some measure of hate, of selfishness has intruded among the unity. That's why scripture speaks clearly and often against division and disunity. Proverbs 6 tells us that one of the things that God hates is a brother who sows discord or disunity among the brothers. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. We ought to manifest that essential oneness through unity. Word-centered, love-fueled unity is essential. But secondly, see how divine unity is an illustration of that unity does not equal uniformity. Unity does not equal uniformity. The goal of the church can't be to produce more copies of its own particular brand. We're not here to clone ourselves as if we are the standard of what a church ought to be. Rather, we should see the various gifts, the talents, the strengths of God's people and praise God for the diversity of the gifts that comes from the Holy Spirit's work. The diversity found among God's people is an asset to be leveraged and not a liability to be obscured. Just as each person of the Godhead shares and possesses the same divine essence, and yet each individual person takes on specific roles in the act of redemption, we can analogously see that the church has a unity that's grounded upon a shared possession of union with Christ, and yet therefore can serve diversely through their various gifts without decreasing in dignity or value. It means that some will lead and some will follow. Some will teach and some are taught. Some will serve and others are served. And yet all are equal in dignity and in value in the eyes of God. None of us should feel discouraged or devalued among the people of God. For we know that our unity is grounded not in the gifts that we have, but in the giver of those gifts. And the Holy Spirit is not a haphazard gifter. He knows what he's doing. And we should rejoice in the diversity of the body, seeking to be responsible stewards of that which we've been given, while also rejoicing in how God has gifted and works through the ministries of others. Do you take time to notice the gifts of others and then thank God for the gifts that they have? I hope that you do. For in the diversity of giftings in the body, we see more of the nature of God than we could ever see by looking at ourselves alone. That's significant. The diversity of the body teaches us about God's own character in ways that we could never do just looking at ourselves. Our unity is informed or analogous to the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Finally, a fourth aspect to our unity seen in John 17. Not only is our unity based upon a name revealed to us, centered upon the word, informed by the Trinity, 
Our unity is to be mission-oriented. Our unity is to be mission-oriented. We could say that our unity, the unity of the church, should be aimed towards the world. Look again at verse 21, where Jesus explicitly connects unity with mission. Jesus prays in verse 21, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, two verses later, verse 23, Jesus says, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, that's united, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. We could sit for days and unpack these verses, but I'll just close with two observations. First observation, the effectiveness of any human endeavor is tied to the unity of the participants. And that's no less true for the work of God's people. The effectiveness of any human endeavor is tied to the unity of the team, of the participants, and that's no less true for God's people. Football teams have to have a common direction. Leaders have to have a shared vision. And churches must have a unified vision, a common task, if any lasting work is to be accomplished. God has so ordered the world that the proclamation of the gospel is the means through which men may believe that the Son of God has truly been sent by the Father. But if the church is not united, if if it's full of division and strife and anger and bitterness and dissension and all kinds of evil, then the gospel can be obscured and even overshadowed. People's ears can become closed because of what they see with their eyes. People will be turned off because of the incongruity between what we say with our lives and what we say with our mouths. That is to say, if we live lives that contradict the truth being proclaimed by our lips, then people will see our hypocrisy. And the question for each of us is clear. Does my life confirm and advance the mission? Or does my behavior impede the mission? Is the testimony of my life and how I live among the body an impediment to the mission of God and the spread of the gospel? Or does my life adorn the gospel message? Am I quick to listen and slow to speak? Am I charitable? Am I seeking to promote the unity of the body by being quick to forgive and keeping short accounts of wrongs? We can praise God that Christ never spoke a word of truth that he did not then live out faithfully. He always aligned his actions with the truth of God. There was no bit of hypocrisy or any incongruity in the life of Christ. There was no divisiveness. There was no sowing seeds of division indeed. Praise God that Christ died on the cross for quarrelsome and divisive hypocrites like us. Even though we fail every day, Christ was willing to die in our stead. Even though we preach Christ with our lips, yet daily fail to live up to his commandments, Christ still receives us. He forgives us. He washes us. He restores us. He grants us his Holy Spirit in order to grow us in our obedience so that our lives may more faithfully align with the truth that we profess with our lips. May God ever grow us and redeem us from our hypocrisy so that the eyes of the world would see no contradiction between the message of our lives and the message of our lips. We pray that we would practice what we preach just as Christ did so that 
the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son to redeem. Second observation from this verse. It's not about you. It's not about you. As we've seen, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, a church that gets distracted by personalities and about posturing and politics and promoting will eventually diminish the unity of the body and ultimately undermine the mission. If unity is tied to mission success, then divisiveness is actively undermining the mission. Divisiveness undermines the effectiveness of gospel proclamation. Division distracts us from our duty. Ask yourself, am I divisive among the body? Am I promoting fights and quarrels, like James says, because I want and I do not have? Do I covet and not yet possess, and so I gossip, or I demand, or I manipulate to try and get what I want? If I do that, then pride is leading me to sow seeds of division among Christ's united body, which is something God hates. Too often the mission of the gospel is obscured and impeded because egos get in the way. The emphasis goes from gospel advancement to the advancement of my agenda. From love of neighbor to the love of praise and comfort. May we ever be on guard against such tempting pitfalls. Christ has done everything needed for the oneness of his bride, including giving his own body that she might be united in his. He's provided forgiveness for the divisive ones. He's provided cleansing for the contentious. And he's instead filled each of us with the same Holy Spirit so that we might be moved to live together in humble, gentle, kind, loving harmony, thereby proclaiming to a divided world the truthfulness of the gospel, advancing the gospel to the lost by our love for one another. That's our calling actively pursuing unity in Christ for the sake of a unified mission and mission success. Rather than putting the emphasis on me and myself, let's cast our eyes heavenward and see again the beauty of our great God and be refreshed again by seeing Christ in all of his resurrected glory, thereby being rejuvenated to return to our mission, unified, walking side by side for the faith of the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians. And if you have not yet believed in Christ, today could be your day to be united to him and united to his bride. No church is perfect, but Christ is. And by being united to him by faith, you too will one day be made perfect, washed of your sins, forever to join him in paradise. That can be yours if you but believe. Trust in Christ. Be forgiven of your sins and come be made one with God's people. May we all strive to be one as our God is one. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ in the place of sinners like us. That he has died for the quarrelsome and the divisive. He has died for those that are quick to speak and slow to listen. Lord, help us to be patient, to be long-suffering as you are long-suffering to be merciful and kind as you are to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
We're going to close this morning by singing O Church Arise, hymn number 666.